it's a pleasure to be back here um, again and um, and uh, to talk, speak with you about the Holocaust, especially now the nine days, very appropriate time of year um, to speak about it. <coughs> and what I want, the topic we chose for today was Holocaust denial, and I'm going to tackle it a bit from a different perspective than... than uh, than maybe you would be hoping for, so hope uh, hope works. Um, many people who get up and speak about Holocaust denial, it's very much from either a political or polemical, polemical or political perspective. I plan on doing neither. I want to give more of a historical perspective. Um, this way it justifies me calling myself a historian, so it just helps me from my own uh, um you know, titling of myself. Um, in, in, but the idea is to give more of a broader perspective, and then you can draw your own conclusions about what you should do as an activist to combat Holocaust denial, as opposed to the speaker getting up and firing you up and saying, we got to combat Holocaust denial with education and, and all that, which is all very important, unfortunately, in the world that we're uh, living in. Um, I want to start off with a couple of stories you know, you guys know me, and I like stories, so I hope you do too. Um, for many years, I interviewed uh, survivors, uh, still sort of do, for Yad Vashem. And um, we go down there with a, you know, with a camera team, and we get their stories and, and, and speak to them. And in order to become a Yad Vashem interviewer, you know, it's a very formal institution, so they train you as an interviewer. And uh, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science, just being a good people person and knowing how to interact with them and, and, and being a good interviewer, um, which is being a good listener, by the way. That's, that's not what I'm coming to talk about, though. But they gave us a lot of rules. And one of the rules was, and this kind of like, uh, this led me to start researching Holocaust denial, this, this story. One of the rules was, under no circumstances... Are any family members or helpers of the survivor to ever say even one word on camera under any circumstances? They are not to say a word. It's only the survivor and the interviewer who's allowed to ask questions. That's it. Why is this? Why is it so important that it's only the survivor? So they gave a few reasons, all of which were legitimate. I want to zero in on the main reason. The main reason was because this goes into an archive. This is not some sort of just family memoir. This goes into the Yad Vashem archive, which is the most important Holocaust archive in the world. And researchers are going to be using this for eternity, presumably. And therefore, they want it to be pure. It's not edited. It's not touched. It's just whatever, whatever goes. And, um, and if a Holocaust denier goes into the Yad Vashem archive and sees that every two minutes a grandson or a daughter or someone of relative of the a spouse of the survivor saying, you remember you told us the story about how you, you lost your father over there in this terrible story? And he's like, oh, I forgot all about that story. And he goes on and says the story. And someone says, hey, that's not what you told us last Shabbos. You said the story differently. You said that he really was beating you like that. And he says, you're right. You know, these people are elderly. 
many times memory is, is problematic, so they, and they have dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, so they need to be reminded, right? But the Holocaust denier will come in and say, huh, the whole thing is made up. His family members who have an agenda, they want the reparations money from the German government, and they want the prestige, and they want whatever else it is, they want the, the memoir book to sell better, I don't know, whatever their agendas are, they are trying to market this story, and, uh, and therefore, uh, that, and the whole thing is made up, there is no Holocaust, there is no anything, and it's all the survivor testimony we can throw in the garden. Therefore, the Yad Vashem said, the rule is, never, and, and every time I go into an interview, I give this big warning to the family members, don't you dare say a word. Sometimes they even listen. And, the, and, the, 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 and, and, and to me, that shook me up. Here we are, ostensibly recording the stories of these survivors. And what we're worried about in the background is those Holocaust deniers out there. And and I was like, really concerned about them? Like, who cares? I mean, so there's a bunch of Mishigayim who want to deny it. What are we so concerned about? And it led me to the topic and to start researching it and, and uh, getting into it more. Another thing at, around the same time was that I kept on seeing in the news updates on the news. I mean, like what Holocaust people, you know, it ends up in these like journals and stuff. It's not, you're not going to find it on CNN. Uh, about the archaeological digs at the Sobibor death, the site of the Sobibor death camp. And they kept on getting really excited about what they were finding at the Sobibor death camp in Poland, eastern Poland, not far from Lublin. And at that time, this is, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago or so, maybe more, I don't remember exactly when it was. And they kept on being in the news how they found the foundations of the of the gas chambers, and they found all kinds of artifacts, and they got super excited about how they found um, artifacts which uh, which were clearly in Dutch, and they belonged to Dutch victims. Why? Because if the artifacts were in Polish, they say, "Hey, I'm in Poland, so anyone could have buried stuff here." But why are you finding so many things written in Dutch? in the middle of eastern Poland, especially if we can date it to around the time of the 1930s, 40s, these artifacts. So it showed that 19 trainloads of, of Dutch Jews who were killed at the gas chambers of the Soviet War is probably true. And they kept on finding all these other things, and everyone was getting super excited about it. This is the first time that archaeologists have been able to conclusively prove that there were gas chambers at Sobibor, and that 250,000, approximately, Jews were killed in the gas chambers of Sobibor. And everyone was like, yeah, and this is a real big blow to Holocaust denial, because one of their biggest claims was that the three big death camps in eastern Poland, Treblinka, Belzec, and Sobibor, disappeared without a trace, because the Nazis dismantled them before the Soviets arrived, planted trees there, and pretended it was just a farm and a forest, and there's no trace, there's nothing there. So, so here we go, we're going to go ahead and bring the, it was a team of uh, uh, collaborative effort of a team of uh, Israeli and Polish archaeologists, and they made all these incredible discoveries, and everyone was super excited about it, and again, like we're doing these, these things are, aren't cheap, they're expensive projects, and here we are going ahead because we need to prove the Holocaust denial is wrong, the Holocaust deniers are wrong. Um, in, in contrast to that, it's interesting about the death camps in eastern Poland. There was no trace that remained of it. So um, I read in uh, the great historian, Sir Martin Gilbert. He has many books about the Holocaust, about World War II. In the introduction, I think, to the one on the Holocaust, if I'm not mistaken, 
he describes his own journey. And when he was a young student in Oxford in the 1950s, he was like 19 or 20, he was like a know, sophomore, junior, something in, in Oxford in, in the 1950s. And he, during Benazmanim, during a you know, vacation between semesters in Oxford, he took a trip to communist Poland. 1950s, no one did that. And he, and he went to the site of Treblinka. The train station, the closest train station was quite a bit of distance away, and he walked, and he got there at night. It's a really great description, if you get a hold of his book about the Holocaust, and it's in the introduction. Um, and he opens the book with it, in other words. And he, and he says, it was described walking there, and finally reaching this clearing in the woods, and it's like dusk, and, and he kneels down and puts his hands into the soil, and it's ash and bone fragments. It's not soil. And this is before the famous Treblinka Memorial is there. This is before the world really knew much about Treblinka. Treblinka existed for 13 months and killed 800,000 Jews in, its, in gas chambers. It's second only to Auschwitz, which lasted for six years. So 800,000 Jews in, in 13 months, including the Great Warsaw Ghetto. So Treblinka plays a major role in the Holocaust, and there was nothing there then. But he, as this young, budding historian, puts his hand in the dirt and, and sees the physical evidence. A great crime happened here. And, and, and Holocaust denial was just in its early stages at that point. And what I want to explore uh, after these three stories is how Holocaust denial developed um, and different angles of Holocaust denial that perhaps are more relevant to us and more relevant today uh, directly in our world. So, first of all, what, are the, what, is, what does it mean? So before we get into the history, we have to define the terms, what are the parameters of Holocaust denial? And although we can devote an entire lecture to those parameters, because there's, of course, a big dispute about it, but there's three basic ideas of Holocaust denial that any one of those three constitutes denial, for sure, when it goes two or even all three of them together. Number one, that the Nazis, the Nazi regime, Hitler, the SS, whoever's in charge, uh, never had any systematic plan to go ahead and exterminate the Jews as a genocide, as, as men, women, and children, as the Jewish people. There was never any plan. In other words, what is this first parameter claiming? That if there were any Jews who were killed by the Nazis, it's because it was wartime, it's because the Nazis were not very fond of Jews, they were clearly an anti-Semitic regime, no one's denying that. Um, and inevitably, when a regime hates the Jews, and it's wartime, and it's a violent regime, no one's denying that, because the Nazis also fought the Battle of Stalingrad, so we know they're violent, and the, so the, the, then inevitably some Jews will get killed and one thing leads to another kind of, and, uh, and that's what happened. But there was never any systematic plan that this is an entire people, racial entity under Nazi occupation that has to be entirely wiped out as an official plan, as part of the Nazi uh, 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 legislation, as part of their, their official uh, uh, plan what to do about the Jews. And in, 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 in during their during their regime, so which there was obviously that's that's the first part of the denial is that there wasn't, and we know that there was. That's number one. Number two is that there was never any um, mechanisms of mass murder. 
in other words, gas chambers, but it could be other things as well. In other words, if, if there were any Jews killed under the Nazi regime, it's because of neglect uh, in the ghettos, which of course is the Nazis' fault, right? No one's denying that. And, uh, and you know, people died of malnutrition and disease. The concentration camps were awful places. No one's denying that either. And people died. Maybe people died of a beating occasionally. Maybe people died of typhus epidemics, which spread through the camps. There was non-hygienic conditions. They were denied medical care. And people ended up dying that way. But there was never this system of mass murder, primarily gas chambers. But also it means the mass shootings in the East which is a mechanism of mass murder because you have entire battalions who are devoted to machine gunning down people to death. So that's a mechanism of mass murder. So there's a denial that a mechanism of mass murder was used. That's the second uh, element or parameter of denial. And the third is that even if Jews were killed or died in the Nazi regime or during the Nazi occupation, it was at most a much smaller number than what, what we say We'll get to what we say in a second, is six million. We call it six million, right? Which I'll get to that in a second. Is it six million or not? But um, it's almost six million. I'll give you the spoiler. So the, 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 the idea is, is how much was it really? And everyone will say their own number. Most Holocaust deniers will say a couple hundred thousand. There's a couple hundred thousand Jews killed or died. Usually they'll say died of the conditions in the camps and, and the ghettos and stuff like that. Some will be very generous. They'll say a million or two million were killed or died. But the, the idea that it was nearly six million is a, is a fabrication and it's an exaggeration and the Jews you just pump that up for their own purposes and ends. Those are the three main elements of Holocaust tonight. Now, You'll go and share that with someone at the Shabbos table. They'll say, oh, what are you talking about? There's this, there's that, there's that. There's about 15 other things that go into Holocaust denial. They're much more minor. Um, okay, Most of the idea of Holocaust denial fits into those three general uh, parameters. So that's what we'll focus on. Now, where does Holocaust denial start? And here we're going to go through the historical development of it. And the most important part of the story is usually brushed over because we love to talk about Holocaust deniers in the West, in the United States, in England, in Germany today, in, or, the, or the... But it starts by the Nazis. That's the most important part of the story, is that the Nazis engage as the Holocaust is happening in preparing the groundwork for Holocaust denial. And that happens, I mentioned before in passing, the Battle of Stalingrad, it happens after their defeat at Stalingrad. Until that time, until February 1st, 1943, when Friedrich Polis surrenders the 6th Army to the Soviets, to the Red Army in Stalingrad. So until that time, the Wehrmacht, the Nazi government, the military, Hitler, were very much convinced that they're going to win the war. If they win the war, there's not a big reason to have to hide their crimes because they're saving the world by removing this terrible threat called the Jewish people. And they didn't do a, a great job at hiding their crimes until that point. Most areas of mass shootings were just left as mass graves, which were identifiable in literally thousands of places across the Soviet, occupied Soviet Union. Or they were in these structured uh, death camps where there were gas chambers and everything, that, uh, I mean, most of the gas chambers were far from 
a civilization, but they were there, and there were train stations nearby, so they existed. All the evidence was around. Uh, very often, Nazi records were around up until that point. Once they realized the Red Army is going to be victorious, after Stalingrad, after they lose the Sixth Army, and they start their long retreat, so they say, okay, we know ideologically we're doing the right thing by doing this incredible incredible act of wiping out the Jewish people off the face of the earth. But it could be that the allies, ally, the victorious, the soon-to-be victorious allies, won't see the, thing, see the things the way that we see it. And therefore, we're going to be tried. And we're going we're gonna to be tried for, our, for what they consider to be crimes. And we're a little concerned about that. So we have to wipe out all the evidence of our crimes. And they go out in a very systematic way of doing so. They first establish Aktion 1005, which they take Jewish prisoners and they force them, it's a, you know, a few thousand of them, it's not like some small little thing, it's a major operation. The Holocaust, I think I gave a lecture on the Holocaust in the Soviet Union a year or two ago. If you didn't listen to it, then just go on, on the website and find it and you'll, 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 you'll see it there. And the, and the, uh, and, and, but there's thousands of sites across the occupied Soviet Union that had been killing sites. Outside basically every town and city, they're a mass grave. And they bring them to every single one, this Jewish forced labor. And they're forced to dig up the entire mass grave, build outdoor crematoriums, like piles of logs, basically. They chop down trees nearby and split them into logs and put layers of bodies and layers of logs and pour gasoline on top of it and light it on fire until there's nothing left. It's just ashes. And then go ahead and take that formerly mass grave, put the ashes in that mass grave, what was a mass grave, and this way you wiped out the evidence. And they do that in literally thousands of places. And then they take their main places, that's all the Soviet Union, the main places are the gas chambers. So the gas chambers of the three great death camps of eastern Poland are dismantled. The entire camp is dismantled, not just the gas chambers. Dismantled, I mean, they don't leave a trace of it. They take all the buildings, all the building materials, and they go ahead and they have farmers plant trees and crops and as if nothing ever happened here. And Sobibor, Belzec, Treblinka, all three of the big death camps in the east, disappear without a trace, as if there was nothing there. Completely. In July 1944, the Red Army uh, is advancing in what's... Yeah, there were selfless behind that? Like, he was okay with the fact that we're both and that maybe we're not going to win? Because that was always... Wasn't that after, Stal- after Stalingrad, he didn't say that he would lose the war, but it was clear to him and his generals that they were losing. They kept on trying to like regroup and make these counter-offensives, but the momentum of the Red Army couldn't be stopped. And even if they wanted to officially deny, Hitler, no, I know Hitler that's denied that's that he was losing the war. Everyone watched the movie Downfall? Oh, you got to. Come on. Am I allowed to do it? No. <laughs> so, so the last ten days in the Führer bunker, in the Hitler's bunker in Berlin, underneath, underneath the Reich Chancellery, during the Battle of Berlin, the last ten days, so we have a lot of documentation about it, because historians have always been fascinated by the last days of the Reich, and the last days of Hitler, and what led to his suicide, 
So there's all these survivors of the of the bunker who were interviewed, secretaries of Hitler and other other SS officers who survived. So they, they, they put together books and books about it over the years. So there's an excellent movie made about the Battle of Berlin, Downfall. And and it's during the last ten days of the Battle of Berlin when he hears Red Army artillery deep in his bunker, which he thought he'd never hear in his life, and he hears that down the block, um, he says, we might lose this war. And that's the first time that he publicly acknowledges it. So you're asking me if he acknowledges that? Of course not. He's, he's the, but it, it's clear. It's clear to the top brass. Yeah, because, because ultimately that's what was happening, right? So, so, uh, so that's, that, that, that's, yeah. The same time as that, one way to cover it up is to not... Didn't they accelerate a lot of the killing of the Jews in this period of time? Yes. And that also is potentially harmful for the war effort. That's resources you could be using for the war effort. Definitely. It's not potentially. It was harmful for the war effort. So, were they doing... Is that kind of happening? They're doing that and trying to cover it up at the same time? Yeah, you have to see it on a map. Eastern Poland is here. Treblinka, Belgium, Sobibor are wiped off the map by late 1943, early 1944. Hungarian Jewry, (laughs) Wehrmacht invades Hungary in March 1944. When the Holocaust in Poland is over, when the Red Army is entering Poland, they invade Hungary. And in May, May 15th to July 9th, 1944, the Nazis deport 434,000 Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz, the only functioning death camp at the time, because everything else had been dismantled, right? And 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 they they're deporting Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz when the Holocaust in Poland is over, when evidence for the Holocaust in the Soviet Union and in Poland has already been disappeared. So that's the answer to your question. Yes, and then they try to wipe out the evidence in Auschwitz, but then it's a little too late. So they have time to blow up all the crematoriums there, so they can't actually check out the ovens in the crematorium, but they can't wipe it out. If you ever take a trip to Poland, you see the rubble of the crematorium until today in front of our eyes, where as it was when the when the when the SS blew it up uh, as they were leaving. One of the reasons they were so concerned at that point was because in July 1944 in Poland they're they're gassing Hungarian Jews in. Auschwitz, which is west of Krakow, so it's on the other side of Poland, right? Red Army advances; it doesn't advance in a, in a you know in a in a day. It takes months to cross a country the size of Poland. On the other side of Poland, in Lublin, where Majdanek is, they liberate Majdanek and Operation Bagratia, the summer operation, 1944, of the Red Army, which is the greatest military advance in world history that you've never heard of because. The most important thing in June 1944 was the uh, American and British armies invading at Normandy, and who cares what the Red Army was doing? So the the they liberate Majdanek, and Majdanek, and this is a Soviet victory. They don't see it in terms of of the Jews and the Holocaust. Obviously, I'm going to talk about that in a second about Soviet Holocaust denial. Um, but, but they see it in terms of Soviet victory. This is a Nazi camp, concentration camp, also death camp. Presumably, as far as Stalin is concerned, if people were killed by Hitler, it's because they were communists, right? Because Hitler hated communism. So any liberation of the Red Army is liberating from communist victims of Nazi aggression. 
So this is a huge propaganda victory for the Red Army, for, for, for Stalin, for, for, for the Soviet Union. So they bring the world media there. And during the war, the, uh, within a week of, of Majdanek's liberation, there are American press photographers at Majdanek taking pictures of the gas chambers. And it's on the New York Times. While on the other side of Poland, Auschwitz is functioning and Hungarian Jews are being gassed. So, and the Majdanek Museum, which we all go to till today on our trips to Poland, was opened in August 1944, when Auschwitz is still functioning. By the, by the communist authorities, by the Soviet authorities who had liberated it. So, so Majdanek was a big, big fiasco as far as Nazi Germany was concerned, because this is concrete evidence. And they said, we can't allow this to happen again. Any other camp that's in the path of the Red Army has to be blown up and wiped out before, before they get there. Majdanek was a big mistake and a big problem for that. One second. Yeah. And, 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 and they learned from that mistake. Um, and, and, uh, and, it, and it remained to haunt them till today, essentially, because the Majdanek archive was captured, the Majdanek evidence, and we use Majdanek until today to speak about the Holocaust. Yeah. That was my question. What did the Holocaust in Irish do about the They don't have much to do. There is one thing that they do. There is one thing that they do. Because Majdanek is captured intact, and because in Auschwitz it's captured somewhat intact, it's blown up crematorium, but a lot of the Auschwitz records were, were not burnt in time, and other parts of Auschwitz were captured intact, some barracks and stuff, and... And Auschwitz is, is Auschwitz. It's, it's so much bigger and so much greater. So it's there. And the Auschwitz Museum is opened up uh, relatively, it's opened in the 1950s more, by the Soviets. So, so because of that, and because the Soviet Union didn't allow um, archives to be opened, they didn't allow access to historians and researchers um, um, from the West to, to research, so there was a lot misunderstood about the Holocaust for many years. And because Majdanek and Auschwitz were captured, either intact or somewhat intact, so historians mistakenly attributed much more of the Holocaust to Auschwitz and Majdanek until the 90s. And then they started to backtrack, because then we discovered what was going on in the rest of the Soviet Union. We started researching Treblinka, Belgium, Sobibor more. We started researching all the killing sites in the Soviet Union that we didn't know much about more after the fall of the Soviet Union. So we started backtracking. So one second. So there were signs. First of all, researchers published these, these figures in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. That in in uh, in Majdanek there were seven eight hundred thousand Jews killed. There was a million Jews killed. Auschwitz four and a half million Jews were killed. Crazy numbers. There was a sign in Auschwitz until the nineteen eighties four million Jews or four million people I forget uh, who were killed in this camp uh, during the years of the Nazi occupation, which is obviously wrong. It was only a million Jews. It was much much less, right? It was in and in in, in Majdanek it was much less. It was. 78,000 people, of whom 59,000 were Jews, right? What was our mistake? Were there fewer Jews killed in the Holocaust? No, just we didn't understand exactly where each thing happened because we didn't have access to things behind the Soviet Union, especially the killing sites across the Soviet Union. So when we updated our research in the 90s and the 2000s, all the Holocaust deniers jumped up and said, Oh, you see, you used to have a sign-up that said 4 million Jews, now it's only 1 million 
In Maidanic, you see, them say 800,000, now it's 59,000. That's a big drop. You see, you're making up these numbers. It's all not true. Now you're saying, oh no, really, it was in the other parts of the Soviet Union. You just keep on changing your facts to fit your agenda. And that served, unfortunately, this unfortunate mistake is attributing the too much to the places that we knew about and were liberated because of this, uh, what I just described. Yes? So do they admit that there were, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, people guessed. Do they make any concession at all? To the, to so, like I said, like I said, the three parameters of Holocaust denial. Some deniers only hit on one thing. It was less than six million, but they used gas chambers, but there was a systematic plan. Other Holocaust deniers will say, no, none of it's true. There were no gas chambers, and there were no, and, 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 you know, so, so it depends what your thing is in Holocaust denial, depends what your agenda is, and depends how distant you are from from scientific uh, data analysis. Um, all of them are pretty quite distant because there's... The, you have to understand that the evidence is overwhelming. No one who respects themselves intellectually or scientifically will actually be a denier. It's, 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 it's not even pseudo-scientific. It's, it's, it's staring in the face of overwhelming evidence and saying, I don't care, I'm going to deny it. So... No one is actually being scientific about it, but they try to cut corners, and things like that are a perfect thing to harp on about uh, about cutting these corners. Um, so the Nazis are the first ones to engage in Holocaust denial. They burn records in Berlin itself, but also in each camp. There were loads of train arrival records. There's all these stuff, and they try to wipe out all these archival material. The problem was the Nazis kept so many records that they couldn't burn all of it and destroy all of it, so a lot of it was recovered and utilized by the Allies and researchers until today. Um, Another overlooked aspect of this last point is the French. And um, aside from the fact that the French were great collaborators and they... they, uh, we, We love... Is the thing about the thing about collaboration, which I'm going to get to, because that's a p- part of denial. Is is countries today want to deny their country's collaboration, which is not. It's a it's a weird form of Holocaust denial because they're saying there was a Holocaust, six million Jews were killed, and and it was a systematic plan, and they used gas chambers, but it was all the Nazis. It was all the Nazis. No one, no one from, or at least. No, or other collaborators. From this particular country, not a single person collaborated. With That's a, an interesting form of denial, right? But it, it exists, which I'm going to get to. But when people talk about collaboration, for some reason, we have this like East-West split. Eastern European peoples, they are, they're, they're these, these goyim. They're, they're, uh, they're anti-Semites, they're collaborators, they're murderers. We don't, you know, and you have the, in the yeshiva stories, I don't know, yeah, we're not going to go back there. We're not going to go to those countries, right? But they will spend the summer in Paris, eating at the nicest restaurants that the kosher world has to offer. And they will go to Holland, and they will go to all these, because that's Western Europe. They they weren't as anti-Semitic. They're all nice. First of all, Germany, I think, is in Western Europe, too, and they weren't too nice. <laughs> But second of all, the very idea, it's just not true. I mean, do any research on it, and with rare exceptions. You had in Denmark, I'm not going to get into Denmark, but that, that, that is a rare exception. But for the most part, the French were collaborators, the Dutch were collaborators, 
The Swedish were neutral in World War II and still were so excited about what the Nazis were doing that Swedish volunteers to the SS formed an entire regiment in the SS, right? So, so the, there was plenty of collaboration by the, by, in the West. Uh, I interviewed a French survivor once and he told me he never even saw a German until he arrived at Auschwitz and the SS in Auschwitz was German. But the French police were the ones who implemented the anti-Semitic legislation. The French police were the ones who arrested them. The French police brought them to the trains and loaded them onto the trains. When they got off the trains in Auschwitz, all of a sudden they met Germans for the first time. That's not the limits of French collaboration. French figured out how to, how to engage in Holocaust denial as well. The records, like I said, the ones who rounded them up and put them on trains were French, not German SS. So that means they kept records, their lists, and the trains, the train schedules, train capacities, right? All those records disappeared. Not a single researcher has been able to find them until today. As of, as of this speech, no one has located the French, and it's a French company, it's a civilian company, it's not even the French government or French anti-Semites, it's a French civilian company, this train company, it has a name on it, I think it's still the main train company in France, um, those records don't exist, as far as we know. So, so there you go, that's engaging in Holocaust denial at that point as well, and it continues with the Soviets. What happens with the Soviets? You'd think the Soviets are the allies. They're the ones who liberate the camps. They're the ones who end the war. They're the ones who provide medical care and food for the Jews in the camps that they liberate, right? So they're the good guys. But the problem is, is that the Soviets can never be completely the good guys. So, so the idea is, I met what I mentioned before, that there's no such thing as a Holocaust. There's no such thing as something special about the Jewish genocide, about the final solution. Anyone who was killed by the Nazi regime were communist victims of Nazi aggression. They're nameless, and they're communists, presumably not even Jewish, right? So it's never something about Jewish. There's never something unique about that, and that's completely repressed, especially in Stalin and the Soviet Union, but even afterwards. Now to talk about it, now to write about it, now to let researchers access it, now to let historians write about it. Survivors aren't allowed to talk about it and say that it was something uniquely Jewish. Even when this, when Soviet Jews, under, in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union, even in the darkest days of Stalinism, and this is something we overlook about how Jews in the Soviet Union engaged in promoting Holocaust memory. When we talk about Jews in the Soviet Union, we talk about two things, how much Americans protested in New York to get them out, and how much Israel took them in in 1989 and on, late 80s and, and early 90s. No one ever wonders about the Soviet Union Jews themselves, right? But they have a story to tell, and they did a lot of things. And this is not about Jews in the Soviet Union, so I'm not going to get into that. But one of the things they did was engaged actively in Holocaust memory. And one of the things they did to do that, one of the many things they did, was to build uh, memorials at each of these killing sites. We're talking about thousands of killing sites. And they would do it again and again because it would be torn down. Sometimes they say it's torn down because it's in Hebrew. Hebrew is an illegal language. You can either write it in Russian or in Yiddish. Yiddish is a recognized Jewish language. So they would do that. Sometimes even then it was torn down. Sometimes they didn't use the right nusach that the, uh, that the Soviets approved of. You were not allowed to say Nazis on these signs. Why? Because 
Soviet Union is USSR, United Soviet Socialist Republics. It's socialism, right? And Nazi is National Socialism. Socialism, socialism, it's Xavier Shava. People are going to think that socialism is bad. So you're not allowed to write on this side. I'm serious. And if you look at, and some of the old plaques we encounter in Eastern Europe, they're still around. A few of them, quite rare. Uh, there's still those 50s era plaques. And they say the fascist Hitlerites. Fascist Hitlerites. That was the approved language to put on these, these signs. And, and, uh, and that was allowed. So, but sometimes even that would get torn down. And um, it was it was not why because there's something that's promoting Jewish nationalism. It's 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 it's, it's, it's so Jews are unique. Jews are different. It's Soviet peoples were victims of the Nazis. There's nothing unique about Jews. That was the first thing the Soviets did to uh, engage in a I wouldn't call it actively promoting Holocaust denial, but through their actions it enabled. Holocaust denial. I would say it that way because I don't think their agenda was Holocaust denial, as far as I understand. Um, another thing they did, again, not because they had an agenda of Holocaust denial, just because Soviets are hard to deal with, they didn't allow access to the archives in the Soviet Union, they didn't allow researchers to come and conduct research in the Soviet Union, they didn't allow survivors to be interviewed, they didn't allow historians to publish material about it, so all this stuff is stuck behind until the collapse of the Soviet Union, and nothing is known about it. And therefore, it gives all these, enables Holocaust denial to happen in the West, because maybe something mysterious has happened there, but no one can even talk about it, and no one can research it, and no one can prove anything, because all these archives are locked up. So that is exists, and I would, I would say, one second, that that's not active Holocaust denial, but it enabled it in a great way. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that's many years ago already. What, what oh, the whole world of Holocaust research has changed. It's, it's, it's like I said, maybe in the 70s it might have been plausible to, to, to somehow claim some of the ridiculous claims of Holocaust deniers. Maybe. It's still a big stretch. There was loads of evidence without it. But once the, the research that we've conducted in the last 30 years and the archaeology stuff and archives that were open... It's it's just added so much in all these thousands of sites that have been discovered. It's 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 added so much. Yeah, it's insane how much evidence. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. So, um, you, you, you keep saying there's thousands of these sites. Yeah, uh, are they basically outside each little city, and there and there's you know. 1,500 people live in the city and their dad or 700 people live in the city. Yeah. They do. Is that basically what's going on? Yeah, it could be as little as 15 people and as many as 80,000 outside of Vilna in Ponar Forest. There's 80,000 Jews lying on a forest thing. You go there and I bring the groups there. It's a forest. It's a clearing in the forest. And you're like, yeah, there's 80,000 Jews lying here. That's a big number. But it, outside of little shtetl, it might be 25 people. You know, it could be any and anything in between. Uh, and, that, and that's in, uh, like, where, so what are the boundaries of that? The boundaries are the occupied, the Nazi-occupied Soviet Union. Very complicated boundaries because there's no Nazi Germany or Soviet Union anymore. Uh, so we have to reimagine both those borders. The, today's, today's eastern Poland, the entirety of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia entirety of Belarus, the entirety of Ukraine, and Western Russia. 
all that. And this is the Einsatzgruppen? Is that what it was called? Einsatzgruppen. Einsatzgruppen. I gave a whole lecture on it here. Um, um, and and there's loads of books written on it. Uh, there's this uh, priest um, who's very involved in it. He's written a bunch of books on it. And he, he, he did like a lot of the field research himself, literally walking from place to place. Um, Father Patrick Debois. Okay, uh, Holocaust by Bullets is his main book, but I think he's written two or three more since then. He's very much involved in in in, in this aspect of the Holocaust, which again has been overlooked. But that's a different topic. Okay, so um, in so the, already by the 1950s, this enables the ground for for Holocaust denial, and then it starts to get another push from what becomes known as the Holocaust revisionism movement. It becomes very not in style in the academic community to say Holocaust denier, Holocaust denial, especially since there's so much evidence. But they say let's promote open discussion about the Holocaust and alternative narratives and revisionism and re-examining the evidence and all these different euphemisms about it which allow um, these pseudo-historians and pseudo-academics to get involved and to... When did they start? 1950s, but it really gets its kickstart in the 60s and 70s, much more so. And then there's this long, long list, and I'm not going to trouble you with going through all the names, but there's tens and tens of people who are prominent in this field and are prominent till today. A few of the prominent deniers were Robert Forreston in, in uh, France, David Irving is still around today. In England, he becomes a major player in the story of Holocaust denial, which I'll get to him as I'm going to elaborate on. Ernst Zundel in Germany and many, many others. There's the Ernst Zundel trial in Canada in the 1980s, um, where David Irving, his fellow denier, testifies on behalf of the defense, and uh, unsuccessfully as it was. Um, and, uh, and he said, um, he said, this was, uh, there was like a story with Ted Kennedy and going over the bridge with his car and there was a girl in the back who, who, who died. I forgot the whole story. What? I can't pronounce that, so uh, I'll just trust you on that. <laughs> so he said, uh, he said at the trial, he said more people, more, more people died in the back of, of Ted Kennedy's car than in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. It was David Irving. Uh, one of the, today, till today, he's still around. He's still denying. He's still one of the most. Uh, Irving is not a Jewish guy. No. Um, the uh, but I, would, I wouldn't put it past some Jew to get up and deny the Holocaust. Also, uh, Chomsky doesn't deny the Holocaust. What? Bobby Fischer. Hmm? Bobby Fischer denies the Holocaust. I didn't know that. Okay, there you go. There you go. Um, so, so the um, Chomsky's a little different. It's borderline. It's it gets into politics about what's 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 anti-Zionism and anti-Israel and anti you know that the that the, the Israel uses the Holocaust and, and all kinds of things like that. And um, there's a guy who's even more prominent in that scene. Uh, um, oh, it's going to slip my mind now. Real New Yorker, like he's a real, real, real antagonistic guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Norman, uh, what? Norman yeah, there you go. It's also it's not denial. Both his parents are survivors uh, from Warsaw, Auschwitz, whatever. So he's not going to be the one denying. It's a different form of it. It's a, it's a, it's a different schmooze, but it's more political. I wouldn't get involved in it anyway. Either way, so so what happens is that um, that uh, 
that that this 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 revisionism goes on, and books and books and books are being published and become quite popular in anti-Semitic groups, in neo-Nazi groups, in 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 the Islamic world, in the world of radical Islam. They adopt Holocaust denial as part of their agenda, and all these different activists and political activists now adopt all these books and so-called research about Holocaust revisionism, and it becomes part of their platform. Um, the most famous story of this whole revisionism saga, which is st- still ongoing, um, is what's known known as History on Trial. Fascinating story. You can look it up. Um, which is a one of, one of the most uh, prominent uh, 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 Jewish Holocaust historians in the world is Deborah Lipstadt. Um, who is she's she has some prominent role in the Biden administration about fighting anti-Semitism. I think she's still like active. She's she's still around, um, and she uh, wrote many many important works and scholarly works on the Holocaust. One of which was published in 1993, called "Denying the Holocaust." It's about this topic, and one of the main people she discusses in that book is this David Irving. Now Irving's agenda is a different agenda. There's all kinds of agendas. It's very exciting. Different agendas: neo-Nazis, there's anti-Semites, there's anti-Israel, there's anti-Zionism, and there's lots of other stuff mixed in. One of the things that is mixed in is Irving's. Uh, it started off as what was originally an academic career. He's been dismissed as an academic since then. It was anti-British, um, anti-Churchill, anti-British, and that's how he started off his journey. That that Hitler never wanted war. Churchill was a warmonger. The British wanted war. It was all about imperialism and the British Empire and keeping control. And 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 the Wehrmacht was a great army. And 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 uh, Hitler was a great leader. And all that. That was his original books, which were very very controversial on the on the edge, but still within the realm of accepted history with a nice slant, right? But over the years, he he ventured into into uh, Holocaust denial to as part of that picture because uh, you know if you're whitewashing the whole story and it's all the British's fault, so we have to get rid of the Holocaust as well. Not only that, but this also is a prominent feature in Holocaust denial is equating um, Allied excesses of the war with the Holocaust, um, and that means the very very controversial bombing of German cities towards the end of the war, which is controversial. And it may be a war crime, and I'm not coming to exonerate any allied thing, right? And Hamburg and Dresden and and all these uh, cities are carpet-bombed and tens of thousands of civilians are killed indiscriminately, and they're bombing them into submission, and it's because there are military targets nearby, whatever whatever the justification for it was. But... um, and whether it was a war crime or not, again, I'm not getting into that. I don't want to get into that controversy. But let's, even assuming that it was, the very idea that you can equate that with the systematic murder of six million Jews in gas chambers by rounding them up and deporting them to camps and shooting them into pits is is just, you know, ridiculous. So, that, so that, But that becomes a prominent feature of Holocaust denial. The Allies perpetrated war crimes, crimes against humanity. The Nazis did. We're all in this together. By the way, at Nuremberg... Um, the when when one of the people who's uh, tried Carl Donitz the Dunitz the the, the head of the Reichsmarine the 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 German Navy um, and he before he was um, you know uh, Grand Marshal whatever it is of the German Navy he was in charge of 
the U-boats, the submarines. And one of the charges against him at Nuremberg is that he allowed indiscriminate submarine warfare, in other words, targeting civilian vessels of, of, of uh, allied uh, countries, indiscriminate submarine warfare, torpedoing any, any vessel on the high seas, irrespective of the fact that it's a military target. Who did Donitz's lawyers bring as a witness for the defense? Admiral Chester Nimitz, the, the uh, admiral of, of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, who testified that that's exactly what the U.S. submarines did against Japanese shipping during the war. Um, and, and the judges at Justice at Norberg accepted the defense and lowered Donitz's jail time to down to, I think, like 10 years or something like that. So, so you see that the idea that, that, that allies could also do things that are not so nice happens. By the way, if the Soviets are allies, then I can tell you quite a bit about some war crimes that the Soviets did during World War II against Germans, against Poles, against, against Soviets. They did it to their own. They, um, and many others. So it's not like there's um, a lot of innocence here, but it's completely incomparable to the idea of the Holocaust. So, so that becomes part of Irving's thing. By the way, before I get back to Irving's trial, um, I have time for this story? I have time for this story. Personal story. I was guiding in Yad Vashem a bunch of years ago, and you get all kinds of groups. The majority of visitors to Yad Vashem are non-Jews from all around the world. So you get all kinds of exciting groups. And one of the groups I had was a German school, German non-Jewish school who were touring Israel, and um, high school with their teacher, and one of the stops was Yad Vashem. So I gave them a tour, and it was a wonderful tour, just nice kids. By the way, they got a better Holocaust education than most Jewish kids I know. They knew it, they were engaged, they asked good questions, it was great. Okay, the end of the tour, the teacher, who's the kids, are all millennials. The teacher is this guy in his 50s, 60s. So he's, he's one of these post-war German kids. So he comes over to me and he says, I really want to thank you. You did an amazing job and it was a great tour and it's so important for these kids to hear. I said, yeah, thank you so much. He said, let me explain to you something. He said, when I grew up, we grew up with it. Everyone knew about it. It was all our parents' generation. We, we grew up with it. These kids didn't, don't know anything. They grew up, they're so distant from it. He said, when I grew up, my parents survived the bombings of the British Air Force in, in, in Hamburg. They talked about the destruction and the evil and the horror of war and how much they suffered during the war. So I know about World War II suffering. These kids don't know about it. And here on this tour, you were able to tell them about it. You got that? You guys all heard that? This guy, now let me, let's get the context again. This is a teacher who brought his class to Israel for the summer. So he's very pro-Israel, very pro-Jewish. Wants them to go to Yad Vashem. Is a teacher, a history teacher. So he's supposed to know what he's talking about. And this is what he's saying. That's the sentiment. It's astounding. I heard it myself. And he's not trying to deny the Holocaust. He's just making a moral equivalent, right? So so it's it's... It's there, right? I'm just putting it out there. It's a cool story. In any event, let's get back to this David Irving trial. Um, so history on trial, because she goes out on David Irving in this book, but he's a Holocaust denier, and he's a quack, and he's not an academic, and he deliberately misuses facts, and deliberately skewed what's in the archives, and, 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 and she goes to town on him. So he sued her for libel. Now, he's smart. He sued her for libel in England. You know you can't sue for libel in the United States. He'll never win. 
freedom of the press, freedom of speech is is a, uh, uh, a cornerstone of American democracy. It's impossible to win a libel trial in 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 the United States. So he sues her in England because it was published under a different label in England, and and. Uh, and this becomes a major trial. She has to now defend herself by proving that he's a Holocaust denier, that the Holocaust in fact happened, and that he deliberately and he knew that and deliberately uh, misused the facts. So she went ahead and decided to go full force. An incredible story. Uh, look it up. It was in 1996, not that long ago. I guess for most of you here, it's a really long time ago. There wasn't any. Twitter then, it was like a weird world. So they, they, uh, they, they, uh, what happens is, is that she, she goes about it in a very systematic way. First of all, she said she doesn't want any survivor testimony at the trial, because she doesn't want it to be an emotional driven testimony, she wants it to be an expert uh, testimony. In other words, she's bringing in some of the greatest scholars in the world, who are going to explain in very cold rational ways to the judge and to the jury and to the court, about this is about the Holocaust. She doesn't want anyone, any survivor getting up and saying, I lost my whole family and it was very sad. And everyone starts crying and say, this is not nice to deny the Holocaust. She doesn't want that. That's, that's nice for maybe this framework. In the court, she wants it to be that it's the expert testimony. And, and they're going to submit documents to the court, court as evidence. In other words, they had to prepare this. And these experts were paid to prepare it. So she gets... Um, um, Richard Evans, a, 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 a prominent British historian, um, as the main expert witness of, of the Holocaust. Christopher Browning, who's one of the, today, till today, he's one of the, in, in North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, Chapel Hill, he's uh, one of the most prominent Holocaust researchers in the world. He's written quite a few excellent books. I'm a big fan myself. And he gave an expert testimony. Um, the German uh, Holocaust researcher Peter Longerich, Longerich, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and the Dutch architectural historian Robert Jan van Pelt, and they each prepared like this. Uh, I think uh, I think Browning's uh, document that he prepared was like 750 pages long, and, and Richard Evans's was what was like a, like a thousand pages long, and they really, really did their research and presented it to the court as witness, and then they're cross examined by by the lawyers and everything, and they give their testimony. And it was literally, history was on trial. And this was going to be the, the to decide in a court of law of whether the Holocaust happened or not. And by the way, just about, I said that in the United States, the, um, that the, 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 uh, the, 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 you, you can't sue for libel, but Docker, there's, I, what? I think Docker lost something. Wasn't that, do you remember that? Hmm? There was a, there was something, I think that they, someone did lose from, from falsely, uh, uh, people, something, it was a big trial on that, I think, Gawker, <coughs> G-A-W-K-E-R, I think. Could be, could be, but, but in, 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 uh, in, the, in, in, there's something called, where are my notes, because I know I'd forget it, um, a judicial notice, it's a legal term, that judicial notice means, in the United States at least, in the justice system, that some things, there are things there out there in the world that are so obvious and so true that you don't need to prove it in court. In other words, let's say, just for example, um, I can prove that a murder took place at one in the afternoon. I don't have to prove, thank you, I don't have to prove that one in the afternoon the sun was out. 
because it's scientifically proven that at one in the afternoon the sun is out. That's judicial, what do I call it? Judicial notice. Okay? So that's an extreme example, obviously. But there's many things that go under judicial notice. And one is, believe it or not, that, and you cannot contest this in the U.S. court because it's judicial notice, that Jews were killed in the gas chambers in Auschwitz under the Nazis during World War II. Okay, that's judicial notice. In other words, if a person wants to claim in a court, using it for some purpose, whatever the, uh, that, 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 uh, that Jews were not killed in the gas chambers in Auschwitz, it won't be accepted in, in the court. Interesting. Um, so, that's different than the legality of Holocaust denial. In the, Mar- in the United States, it's legal to deny the Holocaust. By the way, in the state of Israel, it's legal to deny the Holocaust. In many Western democracies, it's legal to deny the Holocaust because free speech. I'm allowed to deny whatever I want, right? You're not allowed to engage in hate speech or violence, but I'm allowed to deny, you know. In many countries in Europe, though, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. So there's the balance of, you know, do we believe in free speech or should we prevent this? You know, in Germany, in Austria, in Poland... In several other countries, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. Um, so, and you can go to jail for, for publicly denying it. Um, so, uh, so getting so getting back to this trial for the third time is that she's successful by beyond any expectations, and she completely takes apart his. That was like the end of David Irving as as a respected member of the scientific academic community. Um, because he was completely torn apart. The most important evidence at the trial was this Robert Jan van Pelt, who's an architectural historian who explained the gas chambers at Auschwitz, and explained the archaeological evidence, and explained how the gas chambers worked, and he was so convincing to the court that it became proven beyond the shadow of doubt um, a, a, that there were gas chambers at Auschwitz. People get very hung up about Auschwitz because that's what's still there, and that was the biggest, but obviously... Like I started about with Treblinka and Sobibor, it's relevant for wherever there was gas chambers um, to discuss this as well. Um, the last thing I want to speak about, ooh, two minutes left, is is the idea of of collaboration and denying that as a form of Holocaust denial, which is a very touchy topic today. Um, but it's an important one because... The Nazis couldn't have done everything themselves as much as they would have liked to, and every single country they occupied, there was collaboration. Sometimes, like in the case of France, like I mentioned before, it was systemic. In other words, it was the official policy of the regime. Other times, such as in the case of Poland, it was voluntary, meaning it was a grassroots. Some people wanted to collaborate, some people didn't. Um, In most countries... Under Nazi occupation, most countries, and again, I don't want to make too much of a generalization, a tiny minority at one end were righteous among the nations, risked their lives to save Jews, wonderful tzaddikim, we want to remember. On the other end of the spectrum, a little bit larger of a small, a little bit larger, but still a tiny minority, were collaborators, active collaborators, either actively killed Jews or told the SS where Jews were hiding, or things like that. Active collaboration. And there's a massive majority in the middle, probably over 90% of the general population, who did nothing. We call them bystanders. They did nothing. Why did they do nothing? It could be any number of reasons. It could be that they simply didn't care. 
It could be that they're anti-Semitic, so they're like happy that the, this Jewish thing is, is taken care of. It's more likely than not that they're too busy with their own tsaras. It's war. And, and the Nazis were not kind to people in, under Nazi occupation, especially in the East. And it, there was shortage of food, there was shortage of labor. Nazis were sending many of them to concentration camps for slave labor. Um, it was not easy to live under Nazi occupation, especially in the East. And therefore, people were just too busy with their own troubles and hardships and challenges to even care or notice what was happening with Jews. So that's the general rule. We're going to focus, of course, on the collaborators. And that's an important part of the story. That's because the, we say that was true, like Poland and Ukraine, that 90%? When you said most countries... Yeah. Say that yeah. Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania? Yeah. Wow. Now, obviously these numbers vary, uh, right? In other words, the let's say I say that... Uh, that, um, I don't know, uh, that uh, 5 7% of the Polish population collaborated. I don't know. I just made up the number. I, uh, right? That's like 2.5 million people, right? So it's, it's, it's millions of collaborators, right? So even if it's, even if it's small percentages, it's, it's large numbers. Well, you'll hear survivors say, you know, the Polish were the worst. Yeah, everyone will choose their worst, right? But it's 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 it's, no, it's, it's a subjective. That, you've heard in interviews things like oh, that. Oh, all the time. So what mm-hmm. does that mean? It means they mean those million, million people. Yes. Right. Not only that, but it's a sense of betrayal. The Nazis are a monster. The Nazis are this foreign entity who you don't know, you're not familiar with, you don't know who they are. They come in, they swoop in like an eagle, take over the country, and they round up the Jews. But you're my neighbor. We're friends. We did business together. Our children attend the same school. We speak the same language. We're citizens of the same country. I fought in the army with you. You're my employer and my employee. We hang out in the park together. That's that. In that sense, made they're worse. In that sense, you know. And 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 uh, and. Uh, or they say, they never went through Nazi ideology. All the Nazis were brainwashed. These people, they just did it because they were promised a bag of sugar uh, for handing in, handing over Jews. Right? And the Nazis said, we'll give three bottles of vodka if you, if you tell us where Jews are hiding. And there are people who went and knocked on the Gestapo office and said, I want my three bottles of vodka. I'll tell you where a family is hiding. That happened. So that sense of betrayal is very, very deep. How do you give up people's lives... Stay at home and shut up. Like, what do you care? You're an anti-Semite, you hate Jews? Okay, fine. Just stay at home and shut up. You're going to the Gestapo to get three bottles of vodka so that you can... I mean, it's a real sense of betrayal. That's the collaborators. And and that is very often completely... You know, it's not... It's very often disorganized, meaning every person chooses to be a collaborator or not. In places like Ukraine and Lithuania, the collaboration that we're more talking about is active murder. In most of the you know, shooting sites in the Ukraine that we talked about earlier, most of the shooters are Ukrainian. Most of the guards at Auschwitz, Sobibor, Treblinka are Ukrainian or Latvian. Um, in, the, 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 in Lithuania, most of the Jews who are killed are killed by fellow Lithuanians. In one of the Lithuanian towns, Litvisha towns, it was the local Shabbos guy who everyone trusted and everyone knew, and he knew a nice Litvisha Yiddish too, because he hung around the Shabbos homes every week, and he knew all the halachas. And he would go around to homes with SS behind him, and he would say, Yidin, there's no one here. You can, everyone can come out. There's no one. And they heard his voice. He said, it's me, 
the Shabbos guy, whatever, and they would come out and there would be SS there. They would take them out. So that that that's that's real collaboration. That's like going beyond what anything the Nazis Nazis never demanded, never forced any of these people into, and it was completely voluntary. So that happened in every single country. It happened in Ukraine. It happened in Poland. It happened in Lithuania. It happened in in Holland. It happened in France. It happened in Italy. It happened in in Germany and Austria, obviously, not only the SS, but others who got involved, it happened everywhere. And part of this denial is to say it didn't happen. We were all victims of the Nazis, and no one collaborated. If anything, some people tried to save their lives, which is true, because there's also those, right? And let's pretend all that didn't happen, um, and, 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 and flush it down the memory hole. And maybe other countries were bad, Right? Um, and Ukrainians, they were worse. Or what was it? Croatians, they were worse because they initiated the murder. And it's true. The Croatia is, and it's so beautiful today. We don't want to hear that. It's such a nice place to go on vacation. And Israelis love it. And they might be the worst because they're the only place that the Nazis were not directly occupying. That the Croatians saw the Nazis killing Jews. It's oh, a great idea. Let's kill our own Jews. And they're the only country that initiated on their own and wiped out their own Jews without a single Nazi ever stepping foot in there. So they say, oh, they're worse. Since they're worse, that means we're tzaddikim. Right? And everyone says that to everyone else. Right? Um, it was Dutch police who rounded up Holland's Jews. Holland, 90% of Holland's Jews were killed in the Holocaust. The same percentage as Polish Jews. How did that happen? Because there were Dutch collaborators. Now, Holland wasn't excited about that statistic after the war. So for many years, they were one of the only countries feeding names of Hasidei Umot Olam to Yad Vashem. And therefore, till today, they're one of the highest countries because the government did all this research at their own funding to make sure to clean up their record. Until today, you think of the Dutch. I mean, it looks so nice. And look how many names there are in Yad Vashem. But uh, it can't be that they were also collaborators. So there's this systematic uh, idea of all countries under Nazi... By the way, Germany and Austria included. In Austria, there's the first victim myth that Austrians were occupied by the Nazis before any other country. And therefore, Austrians are the first victims of Nazi aggression. Now, a lot of the a large percentage of SS officers running death camps and concentration camps were Austrian. Hitler was Austrian. Heichmann was Austrian. Many others were Austrian. But it's not only that. The Austrian people welcomed Hitler in. They enabled him to come in without firing a shot. They were very excited to have him. There's overwhelming evidence for that. There's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. And until recently, this was what was taught in Austrian schools. I've heard that it starts to change. This is what's in their textbooks. This was the official policy of the Austrian government until recently. In Germany, they say this. There was the SS. They're real bad people. There were Nazis. They were also pretty bad. And then there's the German people. German people is an entirely, totally different... Kind of like that the German people were invaded by the Nazis and the SS, and they kind of like occupied Germany, right? It's, it's almost like the way they describe it in many quarters. There's the clean Wehrmacht myth, that there's the Wehrmacht, the German army, and the SS. And the Wehrmacht was a professional army. Now, leaving aside all the war crimes that the Wehrmacht did, especially in the East, where they, they shot Soviet prisoners of war and all that... You know, I'm not going to get into that. It's less of our topic. But they also actively participated in the Holocaust in the East, right? But that's 
That's part of the thing. Oh, the Wehrmacht is, is a military. We're not part of the SS. So there's this, there's this engagement in, I would call it on the fringes of Holocaust denial. And uh, to get one last political thing, it's after the time so we can do politics, so <laughs> is that this puts the state of Israel in a very precarious situation. Because these are countries that today they want a good relationship with. So one of the tactics in diplomacy is to agree. Now, the state of Israel is built on Holocaust memory and Holocaust survivors, and, and, and Yad Vashem is the shrine of, of, of right? One of the holiest sites in the country. And you want to make it that, that, it's, that, it's, that it's, it's good diplomacy to have good relationships with all kinds of, you know, and we're kind of lonely in this, this region, so we need as many friends as we can get. And I'm not jealous of, of, of the job that diplomats and politicians have. I mean, historians have this liberty to say the truth. And this, and this, and this, and here you have to say, like, you want a good relationship with this country? Well, how about this? I'm going to agree to your narrative that there weren't really any collaborators in your country. It was just the evil Nazis who did it. Or evil other collaborators in other countries. Until I have to say that in the next country. Right? And, and they do that. And many historians, many Holocaust memory institutions, like Yad Vashem, are very upset at the country's leading politicians who are going to remain unnamed. Um, whoever might it be, reminds with who. Um, and, he, and, he, uh, um, and, he, and he and other, other leading politicians go ahead and do this for the state of Israel's needs in 2023, whether it's right or not. Um, so that's a, 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 an important uh, topic as well. Um, but that leads us right into today's politics, which we're going to leave out for the most part, and we'll end with that. Thank you.